Welcome to Elixir Outlaws, the hallway track of the Elixir community. Um, okay, so it's early. I haven't had enough coffee yes, yet. Uh, <laughs> I've had zero coffee, so you're doing better than I am. Our, our, our guest this morning showed up two hours ago. Uh, <laughs> 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 and I guess, I don't know if we're really early or really late, but well, I got my co-host here. Sean, Sean, you want to introduce yourself Hi. and good morning. And our I'm guest, Sean Cripps. Yeah, and uh, we like like Amos was saying, we are very lucky to have Sean Moriarty with us this morning. Do you want to introduce yourself, Sean? Tell us about yourself. Sure. Yeah. Um, my name is Sean Moriarty. I'm originally from Philadelphia, Pennsylvania. Um, huge sports fan. Also a huge fan of uh, Elixir programming. Um, yeah, that's pretty much it. Awesome. I, I'm curious and have been since I first heard like your whole background. How did you get into uh, machine learning and and Elixir both? And like what made you be like, I'm going to I'm going to go do this Elixir book because you kind of exploded on the scene. Uh, <laughs> yeah. Out, out of, yeah. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> yeah um, so uh, we'll start with. So, well, first, like programming in general, I've been doing uh, programming for a very long time. Um, I got a laptop when I was like 12 and taught myself how to make websites and stuff. And like there was a partial inspiration. This is kind of embarrassing to admit, but like a partial inspiration because I watched The Social Network, which had just like came out around the same time. So like took some inspiration from Mark Zuckerberg uh, because I thought the movie was cool and I thought it was cool that he made a bunch (laughs) of money. So I was like, that's what's going to happen. I'm going to learn how to code and I'm going to make a bunch of money. And then, and then I got, I got really, really into it. And, uh, it's been like a passion for probably like now going on like 13 or 14 years. Um, and then, uh, Elixir. So in college I learned, uh, Scala, uh, the, all of our classes were in, um, Scala. So one wow, of my teachers is, uh, Chris Okasaki who wrote, uh, purely functional data structures, um, which is a really, really, really interesting book. So he like taught data structures, algorithms, all of those at, at, uh, my school, um, and Scala was, was what we learned everything in because it was like, uh, I guess like Scala, you, you can pretty much program in any style you want. Like, I think it's like object functional is what they encourage. But if you're teaching like a programming languages class, like you can demonstrate like this is object oriented programming. This is, this is, you know, functional programming. This is all these different concepts. Um, and so I, I'd really enjoyed like the functional programming, uh, aspect of Scala. I thought it was really elegant. Um, and so I was, I actually was on Quora and got into making websites and I, someone had asked the question, like, what is the best language for uh, web development? And the top answer was Elixir. So I figured I would just check it out. And I got really, I guess I, I really enjoyed the language. Like, I think I started, I picked up like Programming Phoenix, the book from the Pragmatic Bookshelf. Uh, and I read that kind of like I, I not really a huge fan of like any of the like web development. I've started to get into live view a little bit more, but um, I picked up programming Phoenix and then I just fell in love with Elixir in general and realized that I actually, I like to do machine learning and math and, you know, numerical computing, but there was no way to actually do that in Elixir. Um, so I was like, well, it'd be cool to write some, you know, frameworks or stuff like, you know, to, to do some, some of this stuff in, in Elixir uh, without any real intent of, you know, it being used widely at all. Like I, I really didn't think, I thought I was just going to have fun, teach myself things, you know, um, I like to like reverse engineer things. So 
there's a genetic algorithms framework in Python. I think it's called uh, Deep, maybe, or uh, I think it's Deep, D-E-A-P, Distributed Evolutionary Algorithms in Python. And so I was like, I, I'd kind of just like looked at that framework and took it as inspiration for an Elixir version of, of you know, the same thing that Gen X was what it was called. And it was really just a toy. Like I haven't worked on it for probably four ish years now, but it was really just intended for me to understand genetic algorithms a little bit better and then uh, be able to do it in Elixir. And then after, you know, I started writing it, I was like, it would be cool to like actually, you know, write a book about this. I don't know where I got that wild idea from, but um, <laughs> I was, I was on break uh, from school. It was like, I think, I don't know, so probably August or July. Um, and I just sent a proposal to Pragmatic Bookshelf because I noticed they had like a write with us, like link, um, not expecting anything of it. And then uh, Dave Rankin, actually, he is now the CEO, I think, of the Pragmatic Bookshelf. He replied to me and like he gave me some really, really good feedback on uh, the book. He actually really liked the concept of, you know, writing a book that pretty much nobody has ever read. I think he, he thought it would be pretty interesting to Elixir programmers. And he kind of walked me through the process of how to frame it and uh, how to, you know, make it more marketable than what I had originally intended. And it ended up getting accepted by the, uh, the, the bookshelf, their, their publication board. Um, and then, yeah, the book got published, I think, almost a year later. Um, and that's when I got an email. It was like a late night email from Brian Cartarella asking me if I wanted to work on machine learning problems in Elixir. Uh, <laughs> and the rest is basically history. That's awesome. Like, so you go, you go from uh, what I learned from this whole story is learn purely functional data structures <laughs> and then, then you, you too can write a book. Like, yeah, <laughs> <laughs> exactly. Yeah, those like the learning from uh, Dr. Mikasaki, his homework assignments were incredibly hard. I, I remember <laughs> like, like I actually grabbed I, the reason I like got familiar with the book was because I had a homework assignment on it was probably on like regular expressions or something like that, that I like just could not figure out like. Uh, and so I, I went and like grabbed the book purely functional data structures to maybe see if I could get in his mind a little bit to figure out like how, how to solve some of these problems. Did it help? I uh, kind of. I've I've tried to get into his mind by reading that book quite a few times, <laughs> and like uh, uh, Chris Keithley told me, he's like, you just got to finish it because I would get like I'd get to a problem in the book, and then I would work on the problem, work on the problem, work on the problem. And I'd think I'd have it, but there's no like answer key in the book. <laughs> and so I was like, is it right? And I never could get past that. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Some of a- the things like it was cool too, because he <clears throat> would write all of his, like his homework assignments were not like recycled. Like he would just rewrite a lot of the problems. Um, and for a little bit, uh, he actually was teaching the class in a language that he made up himself called Hudson. So like you, you would learn this, I wouldn't call, I guess you could call it esoteric, but it was like this own language that he designed for the entire course. And then he eventually switched to Scala. But yeah, like he, they, they would always have like a funny backstory to them as well. Like it would, they would make up like a, a, like novel story basically around these programming assignments. And then, but yeah, they were, they were very, very difficult <laughs> and there was no chat GPT either. So <laughs> <laughs> That feels like a good segue. So I, I saw you give a, um, a talk to a meetup. I, th- I think it was Salt Lake City or Denver, something. I don't know. Denver meetup, I think. Yeah. On writing a, a chat bot, AI-powered chat bot in Elixir. Mm-hmm. And 
I, I, I mean, I'm just going to stop there and you can <laughs> fill in the story because <laughs> there was a lot to it. And I, I feel like if I ask a question, I'm just not going to do it justice. Yeah. Yeah. So I uh, worked with a company called Teller. They asked me, the CTO, Dan, uh, he asked me if I, it would be possible basically to write like a support bot to automate some of the, the support queries that you get. And I was like, yeah, I mean, we could try to do it open source, do it on Elixir. Um, and so we ended up training a uh, variant of uh, Flan T5, which is one of, it's a large language model that Google released on uh, essentially some of the Slack support conversations they had. Um, so we took, uh, I think I actually ended up writing like a, a live view, like labeling uh, UI. So you could go in and you could, you could go through these, these you know, your Slack exported data um, and you would label this question and response. And then uh, we ended up, I think uh, his name is actually Heath after Heath Ledger, the, the greatest supporting actor of all time. Um, I wish I, I will die on that hill. Um, mm. But <laughs> we ended up training, I think like I, I ended up labeling like 250 question response pairs and then training sort of a small conversational support bot. Um, and it, it, it performed decently well. One of the, I guess, issues was that GPT-4 came out like right before we were going to really ramp up work on Heath and it kind of just like obsoleted everything. Um, but it was still an interesting exercise in like how to use Elixir to do some of this like large language model deployment um, and then labeling is another one too, like annotations, uh, especially with live view is a, is a pretty interesting experience implementing some of the, uh, the labeling tools in live view. Um, yeah. So the, the goal there was to try to uh, take some of the, the state of the art models that were out there um, and then, you know, use open source to see if we could automate this task. So you, did you end up open sourcing the model or? Not, or yet, not the no, model, but we, okay. yeah. So we have a we have a tool that uh, it's will be open sourced. Like it's all everything's ready. I just gotta uh, talk with Dan about getting that published. So it's a kind of a library that anyone could use to bootstrap their own version of the same thing. Like it has all of the uh, uh, the training. Like it has all of the labeling scripts, or all, I'm sorry, all the labeling tools. It has um, some data augmentation scripts. So one of the things that we actually did to increase the size of the training set, which I thought I think is pretty interesting is um, basically bootstrapping with GPT-3 responses. So um, labeling data takes a really long time. And I know because I spent like 12 hours on a Saturday uh, labeling this Slack data, uh, it's a very, very <laughs> tedious process. Um, and so to increase like artificially the size of the data set, we basically took the Teller API docs and just fed that to GPT-3 and we're like, generate five questions based on this snippet uh, or mm -hmm. generate, you know, a few, like, like pretend you're a customer and asking a question about this particular thing. How would you, you know, what would the question be and how would you respond? Um, and so from that, we were, I think I ended up labeling like 250-ish pairs of, you know, instruction response pairs myself. Um, I think we artificially increased the size of the data set to like two or 3,000. Um, so it was just a way to, to artificially, you know, bootstrap the data set we had with a lot less manpower than it would have originally taken. Mm -hmm. uh, it actually ended up working pretty well, too. Like the, the model we trained was a very small model, but uh, it performed, I would say, pretty decently on a lot of the like in distribution questions. So if you asked it something that like it had definitely seen a variant of the same question before, it, it knew the answer. But if you like one of the things, one of the problems was that it would like make up 
you know, answers about pricing. So you would be like, what's the price of like a balance request? And it would be like $5. And you're like, that's not even close to true. <laughs> so that's, that's what I was going to ask you about dealing with that. We, we, we call them hallucinations because we're too nice. We should call them lies. But so one of the first things I tried on chat GPT four, actually, this is like spot on was I ask it what the pricing model is for teller. And it came back with like, four levels of tiers for pricing and it made up all kinds of stuff. And I said, that's not right. And it came back, it said, sorry. And it gave me three more. And then I said, where are you getting this? And it was like teller.com slash pricing. And I clicked that and that didn't even exist. And I was like, this is, (laughs) this is the, like, why, why are people in love with AI? And that's like, well, I think AI is powerful, but at that moment I was like, everybody's using this as a knowledge base and it's not a knowledge base. But so how did you deal with, Lies. I'm not. I can't call them hallucinations in your yeah. in in your bot. Yeah. So I mean, we didn't have any explicit handling. Like we never actually ended up releasing it to any of the external customers because like that was something you just it was too much of a risk. Um, hmm. So how I probably you know in retrospect would handle something like that. More data is the obvious one, but even that you really can't like go off the guardrail. Like you, like you, things can go really bad. Um, so I think one of the ways to mitigate the risk of hallucinations in, in like certain cases would be uh, rather than training the model to just answer anything, you you have you could probably train like an additional classifier or something that would say like, hey, this question should not be answered by me. So you, you basically train refusals or like a refusal model. Um, so if it asks about pricing. Uh, or it asks something sensitive or, it, you know, just have the model refuse to answer or not even send the request to the model and just have uh, some, you know, a human come online and, and handle those particular questions. Um, but even that is not really a perfect game. Like I think with the language models, you're never going to get 100 uh, percent reliability. Actually, there was a Jose and I were having a very it was a funny conversation or an example. He told me yesterday. I don't know. Have you ever seen the movie The Prestige? No. It's two uh, magicians. Yeah. Like. Christopher Nolan, I think it is. And yes, yes, I have. Yeah, yeah. So I won't ruin the the ending for those that haven't it's, seen it, but it's a great movie. But there, I think uh, Jose said his brother had asked uh, GPT four, who is Paolo Valim, which is that's his name, and it, I think it said Paolo Valim, aka Jose Valim, is the creator of Elixir. <laughs> <laughs> and I like immediately was like, oh, it all makes sense now. It's because of the prestige. It's it's always been there's always been two. That's that's why that's how it works. <laughs> why no matter what time of day you're on elixir irc he's there there's an answer (laughs) exactly (laughs) so so, okay so if i think i think you you feel like you're just putting into all of my preconceived notions of of ai and large language models and saying that you don't think it's going to be 100 percent there so what what do you think the future is of large language models, where, where do you see them being the most useful and where should we avoid the heck out of using them? Yeah, I actually, I saw a really interesting use case yesterday in education that I think could actually be pretty, pretty big. Um, especially with like how everyone nowadays is, there's a lot of concern over like students using chat GPT to, to plagiarize work and everything. Um, and there's also the obvious cases of like, it's very easy to tell up when, like tell when ChatGPT is making things up for like a, like, I think there's an example of a lawyer that actually used it and it just made up a bunch of case law. And then the lawyer got in a ton of trouble because like the citations and stuff was like not even <laughs> close to true. Um, 
But I think there's like an opportunity to turn these hallucinations into kind of like a feature instead of a bug. And so I saw a homework assignment that a professor was giving out that was basically like you, the professor gave the students a prompt and asked them to use ChatGPT to use that prompt to generate an essay about some topic and then have the students grade the essay for correctness. And so you, you get the, the, you know, you basically have to research like every little detail and I think that's something actually you can expand upon pretty much anywhere. Like I could ask it a prompt, like give it a prompt, like, hey, how do you write this function in Elixir? And then ask a student to, okay, grade that. Or, you know, like what is the algorithmic complexity of what they produced? Or how would you fix this? Like mm-hmm. basically asking, turning them into the reviewer rather than the actual producer of the code, uh, which is significantly harder, I think, than coming up with code yourself, you know, for any oh, problem. Yeah. Um, especially when it just it just makes things up like elixir it's actually notorious for elixir when it just like makes things up um it introduces new modules like it, it's it's insane but i think that's like that's something you can it would actually be you know really beneficial to a student to go through and uh review ChatGPT for its hallucinations and you know then you turn the hallucinations into a feature not not a bug that's brilliant i'm well that's like a self-learning model too if there's if you want to learn about something, ask it a question and then go research its answer. But it gives you, it probably gives you enough vocabulary. Like if you have no idea about it, it'll give you enough vocabulary to start looking. Yep, exactly. Like you, you can, it's kind of like a, it solves the cold start problem um, mm-hmm. where it gives you an idea. I, I think that that's a lot, really helpful for a lot of things. Like when, if you just have no idea where to start, uh, just type something into ChatGPT, like just word vomit into ChatGPT, and then it'll give you a decent, you know, base to start with and, you know, to go research on your own. But um, you definitely need to force the like that, that, that research aspect of it. Yeah, I saw that thread as well. And I thought it was it was a brilliant use of AI that that uh, didn't, you know, would, had had fewer ethical problems <laughs> associated and uh, and, you know, taught the students really critical thinking skills, too, as, as part of the process. It's great. Great idea. I, I like that it's another way for somebody to learn that maybe I think you need to learn to write. I'm not saying don't learn mm-hmm. to write, but for people who hate writing, like, hey, okay, well, every once in a while we're going to have an assignment that instead of you writing, you're going to take the, the greater point of view. And yeah, that's, man. Yeah, okay. I I'm, I'm absolutely. Yeah. No, now I, I want to go play. I, I, i i hate writing um which is funny because i've written one book now actually it's going to be two books soon um (gasps) or it technically is two books soon um but it hasn't been published yet so uh we're still getting there um hopefully end of june can you Um, tell us what it's about sure yeah you know it's it's a it's a book on uh machine learning and elixir um it's i think the title of the book we settled on is literally machine learning and elixir Hmm. um so it's been done for quite a while now. I had to go through some additional review processes, but um, end of June is, I think, that the timeline we're targeting for the beta. Uh, and then I think, you know, a few months after that, once it gets through the beta and technical review, it, it should be good to go. Um, I think it'll be a little bit more useful to people than the genetic algorithms in Elixir book, because uh, it actually is about like NX and Axon and Bumblebee. So um, you'll get a better idea of how to do these things. Um, Hopefully it's better too because I actually know how to write a book now. Um, but I don't know. I don't <laughs> that helps. <laughs> Your first one was good. It was good. I en- I enjoyed it and learned a lot. And so 
like when I went to college, I wanted to learn about genetic algorithms and nobody was really teaching it. And I couldn't find anything about it on the internet. And I had kind of put it away for many years. We don't talk about how old I am. Uh, and then when your book came out, I was like, oh, this is telling me all of the things I wanted to know how to do and how to, yeah. how to like mix alleles and all that was, <laughs> it was really nice. Yeah. I appreciate that. Yeah. One of the issues I ran into when writing the first book, that was definitely not an issue this time around was, um, it, with, with Prague Prog, you have to go through like a technical review process where you, you find volunteers basically to read the book. Um, and they were like, Hey, Sean, mm -hmm. can you find some volunteers, like, you know, industry experts, elixir people? And I was like, no, I don't know anyone. <laughs> like, I, I've, I, I could find you a couple college students probably, but I cannot find a single person to review the book. So I, I actually did get a few, uh, volunteers through the publisher. That was really nice. Um, but you know, for the most part, we were, uh, we were a little, yeah, we were, we were lacking in the, uh, the, the public, like the technical review portion of it. Um, whereas this time around, I was able to, to reach pretty deep into some of the you know, folks in the Elixir community, which was, was, was really nice. Very cool. So it, it is Prague Prague again. So you've decided that you really love subversion and working with that. Is that what you're telling me? Oh, yeah. <laughs> no comments on subversion. I think I've definitely like made some subversion mistakes in my, in my, in my time writing these books. Um, all I know is SVN ad and SVN CI, and that's it. That's done. Yeah. I think I think Cribs, you were starting to say something. Oh, yeah. I'm trying to. Oh, yeah. So so you you've been in the process of writing these these books, but how did you get started working on NX? Yeah. So after I wrote the genetic algorithms and Elixir book that got published in I think February. Or, well, I think the beta came out in October of 2020. Mm -hmm. Um, I got like a late night, like literally like it was like three or 4am, uh, email from Brian Cartarella and like, I didn't, so when, when, after, you know, publishing the book, one of the things that, you know, they say at Prague Prague is that people are gonna like challenge you, um, and you just have to <laughs> take it, you know, like accept it. And, and I, like, I was literally like straight out of college. So, um, mm -hmm. not a lot of experience in like any non-academic programming setting. So, you know, I, I had no, I guess my, my only foundation was like academic. So I, I was, I would say like insecure and in, in like pushing back on people uh, in, in some ways because I just didn't have the experience. Um, but I got a late night email from Brian Cartarella that I thought was like someone like basically angry at me for writing the book. Like it, it, it was just like very, <laughs> it was a very like challenging question. Like why would anybody write genetic algorithms in Elixir or something like that? But it was not like definitely no, now knowing Brian was not meant to be like that at all. Like it was more just like he wanted to know why and it, like what, what I thought the benefits were. And so I gave him an answer. And then um, after a few emails, he was like, well, hey, like, you know, Jose really wants someone to work on machine learning and Elixir in this upcoming year. Like, do you think you'd be interested in doing that? So I was like, yeah, sure. I'll, I'll take a stab at it. So um, started working on that pretty much like a, a few weeks later. Um, mm -hmm. I think the initial commit for the, it started out with the XLA library is what we, we mm -hmm. that's that came before NX. Um, and then it kind of just like took off from there. Um, so I, it was during the pandemic. So I had a ton of time. Like I, I would work a lot on just this open source library. I was, I was very very dedicated to it. I wasn't as busy as I am now. So, um, you can see there's a lot of the initial pace for me was unsustainable in a way. <laughs> um, but you know, it, it, it 
fortunately it, it actually ended up working out pretty well. Um, I would say like writing the book is probably the highest ROI thing I've ever done just in terms of mm -hmm. like, uh, the people I've met and the opportunities I've been given, because I, obviously if I hadn't written the book that I, I don't think I would be where I'm at now, which is like, I, like I said, I hate writing. I, I still have no idea why I agreed to write the book. Like, and even while I was writing the book, I was finishing up school. So like, it was just a massive, like additional amount of additional work that was like not necessary for me at all. But, um, I was fortunate that I actually ended up getting it published. And then, uh, you know, the NX project kind of sprouted from there. Was this while you were in Dr. Okasaki's class? Yeah. <laughs> so you're like was, taking yeah. his class with these hard problems and writing a book. You're like a superhero. Yeah, maybe, maybe some inspiration from some of his uh, <laughs> his problems. No, um, yeah, I think, I, well, it, so because it was my last two semesters at school, it would have been, I would have been taking, I think, algorithms, uh, maybe algorithms from him. And then... I don't think I had a class from in second semester. So I think it was just algorithms first semester. And that was, that's one of the harder ones. Um, but I, I think I'd already finished like the, the, what everyone says are like the really hard Dr. O classes. So I was fortunate to be past those. <laughs> <laughs> so you, you now like NX is about two years old, I guess, uh, from its initial release. Um, obviously you've been doing stuff with it, but um, what have you seen other people doing? Yeah. So I've seen a lot of like really interesting projects, I think come out of it. One of the more interesting ones I've seen recently is how his name is going to escape me. Someone in the, um, the airline ecosystem foundation has been working on a, uh, I think a partial differential equation library for like doing like physics simulations and stuff with it. I think it's Greg Vaughn, I want to say, but I don't want to misquote his name. So I'm going to look. And there is sure a Greg Vaughn in the, in the community. That I get it correct. Wonderful Texan. Yeah, I'm pretty sure it's him uh, has been working on this this uh, library for doing like physics simulations, which I think is, is really, really cool. It's like one of the more unique ones I've seen. And then Brian uh, Cartarello is a big sailor, has been having Paolo Valente work on uh, solving problems in sailing for him, like optimization problems, <laughs> which is like another really uh, interesting use case that I wouldn't have anticipated. Um, and then I, I, I'm familiar with a bunch of people that are just like working on, you know, using it for general machine learning problems. Um, I think we're starting to see like more and more people use it in enterprise applications, which has been really cool. Um, mostly just Elixir people that have an Elixir app that, you know, they want to mm -hmm. just keep everything in a, in a uniform stack. And I think one of the things we've done really well and are like starting to push more towards is making it, uh, I would say, easy to like transition from Python to Elixir. So you could have a data science and machine learning team that, you know, they give you a model that's, you know, in, in Python and then. Uh, throw that over the, the edge to, to the people working in Elixir and, and things should just work. Um, and it's something we're still trying to improve. But um, yeah, I think I've seen a lot of like like enterprise use cases in the last year, which has been really cool to see because it took a while to get the NX Foundation to you know where it is now. And um, I think now things are starting to stabilize a lot. So uh, it's been nice to see a lot of people start to adopt it. That's great. Um, yeah, I uh, was impressed by the initial demo uh, that Jose gave, um, and then you know, kind of lost track with it a little bit after that, uh, other than, you know, seeing all the progress on, on your book and, um, and, uh, you know, of course, like one of the big tie-ins is, uh, uh, working with live book in NX. Cause you know, I, I suppose that a lot of the folks who do machine learning stuff in Python are using 
um, uh, what is it, a <clears throat> Jupyter notebooks to to run that stuff and and share it. Um, so I think that was those those two things kind of happening around the same time um, seemed like a really really big uh, big way to bring uh, that stack to a bunch of people who aren't f familiar with Elixir already. Yeah, I think the best thing about like LiveBook too is it's just like generally useful for Elixir. Mm -hmm. It's not it does it's not just like a machine learning tool. Like I use LiveBook all the time for non machine learning related things, and then um, also out of the, this whole ecosystem, we've gotten like Explorer. Uh, and just like better data analysis and visualization tools, which has been really awesome to see. So I think there's a lot of things that have sprouted out of the NX, you know, initial effort that has been really great for the community in general that aren't just machine learning related. Yeah, ab absolutely. And like I've used Jupyter Notebooks and when LiveBook came out, I was like, okay, whatever. I, it's It's the same thing. And then starting to think about being able to connect it to a production server and use it as your debugging tool so that you have a nice after action report to, to hand off to people and share with your team is it blew my mind. The first time I did it, I was like, okay, now, now this is useful to me. <laughs> but <laughs> Yeah. Like it, it, um, it was very intentional too. I remember when like they were first developing the, the live book concept, it was like a very intentional uh, effort for them to research all of the problems with Jupyter Notebooks and then, okay, now how can we avoid every single one of the issues? So that's where you get the, like the whole branching, um, and the, the, uh, it's like the synchronized execution or, or what's it called? Sequential mm -hmm. execution. Um, so you don't have the issue of like, like, I've always, I've definitely had the problem where I have a Jupyter Notebook and I send it to somebody and it doesn't work because I deleted a cell or, or the like environment <laughs> is different or just something, you know, dumb. And that's really, really common in the, uh, the, uh, Jupiter notebook world. So it was a really, like I said, intentional effort for them to do a lot of research to make sure that it actually did not have all the pitfalls that Jupiter notebooks have. So what do you see in the next year? You got, you got plans, any big surprises outside of, outside of this awesome book that you're writing? Yeah. So I don't, I would say I don't have any um, like concrete plans right now. I have some general ideas. Uh, so one of the things I've been trying to recruit some friends to to come and contribute to the community a little bit because I got a, I have a lot of friends that are like machine learning people but not Elixir people. Um, I convinced one of my buddies to write the uh, a decision tree library for Elixir XGBoost. So that was cool. I'm kind of like helping him out through the process and, and getting him involved, trying to bring more Python people into the fold so we can, you know, have more manpower to compete a little bit. Um, and then in general, uh, hopefully I would say expanding, uh, some of the, the models in, in Bumblebee. So we've been, we've done a really good job, I think of keeping up with like, what is the state of the art in open source? Um, so we have llama, we have like pretty much all of the, the, the top of the line open source models in Elixir we have, um, some of the things we don't have are more on like the infrastructure piece, uh, and I should say like the, the compiler piece. Um, so we don't support like quantization and quantized inference right now in uh, XLA or, or anywhere at the NX level, which is really important for uh, doing inference with these larger models on small machines. Um, we don't necessarily support like distributed inference or even distributed training. Um, so, you know, getting that up to speed. Um, and there's some other things that are like, like LoRa, low rank adaptation, uh, to, to let people train 
these large models on small machines as well. Um, I, funnily enough, like all of the problems that we have to solve are also all of the hardest problems to solve. So um, all of the <laughs> hardest things to work on. But, uh, you know, if I were to say what the next year would look like, I would say a lot of those things getting added to NX to uh, improve the uh, inference and like deployment story, um, as well as improve some of the, the training aspects uh, so people can actually train their own models. Yeah, how How is that? that actually been in general in the industry because I have been out of touch with the infrastructure side of it a little bit, but uh, one company I worked at a number of years ago would use it for um, use machine learning for recommendations um, based on, you know, the, the, the customer's previous purchases or previous um, activity. And, uh, and it was kind of the wild west in terms of setting up the infrastructure and like everybody had their own bespoke stack for, ingesting the information they needed to train um, or to, you know, or to supply live data to the models. Um, and like, it, it, se- it seemed like such a um, kind of a nightmare to, to manage that. Has that improved? Um, in in any way? The, the, the general machine learning ecosystem? Absolutely not. No. <laughs> um, like the, it's actually insane the amount of like ML ops tools that are out there mm. that are just like, these massive opinionated libraries on how to do machine learning deployments, even just the serving models portion of it, which is like just having a Mm -hmm. framework for getting inferences from a model uh, in a performant way. There's, I could name like four or five off the top of my head right now. There's TensorFlow serving, there's Torch serve, there's uh, Triton inference server. There's, then there's like a, a Kubernetes uh, I don't. I think that's how you say it. I, I hopefully, I didn't just embarrass myself right there by saying. <laughs> but uh, it's. I think it's on KServe, which is like a Kubernetes wrapper on all of the other fifteen serving <laughs> frameworks that you. And, and it's just like a complete, you know, ununified mess. Um, we in Elixir have or in NX have like an NX serving abstraction, which is really just like a batch, uh, like a, a dynamic batching pipeline. So one of the challenges or one of the things with machine learning deployments that's really important is is handling concurrent loads at like a, a batch size of one uh and because you, you have people that are you know sending requests to a model in like a non-uniform way um mm. and if you're using like a gpu for that it's actually really inefficient to do uh inference with a batch size of one because part of the reason the GPUs are significantly, you know, faster for doing a lot of these workloads is because of the, like, I guess it's like bandwidth basically. Mm -hmm. Um, So you're wasting a lot of resources if you're just sending a single inference to the GPU at once. Um, So how people handle this is you introduce a dynamic batching sort of, you know, workflow where uh, someone sends, you know, you have three people and they all send requests within a 10 millisecond window. Um, And so you would actually aggregate all those on the back end and then pass them all to the GPU at once and then partition them back out to each of the individual users. Um, and you don't necessarily have like, like, like the latency impact of that delay is, is not significant enough for the user to notice. Um, and so that's, that's what NX serving does for you is, is handles that sort of dynamic batching. Uh, I would say like opaquely, or maybe that's the wrong, like transparently, it, <laughs> transparently. Yeah. Sorry. Not opaquely, <laughs> okay. but it, yeah, it handles it transparently for you. So you can just call, nx.serving.run or batched run and um, everywhere that's called like if there's overlapping requests it'll just handle the batching for you um, and that's that's kind of like most of the advantage you get from any inference serving framework and then we kind of let users handle the 
ML operations portion of it themselves, because like you said, like, mm-hmm. I think everyone has an opinion on how to do it correctly. So uh, trying to force that opinion on people is, is not necessarily the, the right thing to do. Yeah, I, I just I recall some of the uh, diagrams of the, you know, like the infrastructure architecture diagrams of of some of those things just being like, wow, this is, you know, this is a, a, a whole ecosystem in its own in terms of setting up the stuff that you need to um, to do that. And there, there were like not really, um, you know, DevOps people really experienced in that. And uh, and then I was at a different company later and they had a totally different setup. <laughs> so yep. it's yeah. it's uh, challenging. It kind of have you well the recent one is now like the uh the these LLM powered apps, like their Langchain diagrams they have now where it's like you've got prompt template that goes to prompt serving that goes to LLM that goes to memory module and it's like this is super complicated for no reason. I don't know. <laughs> <laughs> I'm just making diagrams for, you know, no reason right now. I don't know what, what the deal is. Um, it's kind of turned into this really complicated field. Uh, it's, it's interesting. I think I think that's our title today: making diagrams for no reason. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Sorry, I'm just writing everything down. <laughs> I, I have like 50 things to research after this. It's fine. We'll be we'll be okay. Including going downstairs and picking up my Doctor Okasaki book and reading it again. <laughs> <laughs> I'll have to send him a note that I got him, uh, uh, you know, two, I have two, two readers here. Of, of this book. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. I think, I think I originally read it in, in PDF form. And then, uh, one year I was in Portland and of course we went to Powell's books and there it was in, in physical form. I was like, yeah, I get that. Yeah. I think there was one copy at the library at school and then I ended up just buying a copy on Amazon, but it was his thesis. So you can just find the right. PDF form on, uh, the internet. Like, I, but I think there's some expanded aspects yeah, of the book it is like, it's a little a might, little little bit of cleanup too yeah and i think he has includes like haskell examples in uh, i think the original one is just standard ml and then i think mm. he includes the haskell examples in uh in uh what's it called i think one of the coolest th- experiences for me was learning red black trees from him because i think some people call them okasaki trees because he created some like reduction uh, or some algorithm that you could like reduce. I, I don't know. I, I actually forget. Like I think red black trees are like the way to it's a balanced binary trees, so a way to keep trees like these binary trees balanced. And he invented some algorithm or reduced the number of steps that you could like take in this algorithm to balance the tree. So like they would I think we learned them as red black trees and then people would call them okasaki trees and i don't think he liked that because they were not like (laughs) not actually okasaki trees i didn't invent this yeah (laughs) he didn't like the misnomer yeah the uh wasn't wasn't a big aspect of his his uh his thesis and and well the book of course was about cost models and and uh reducing the the uh the complexity the computational complexity of, of managing data structures, which is like well established at, at the time he wrote that it was well established in um, imperative programming, uh, but not not in functional programming. Yeah. There is a really he we had a one class. Um, he told a really good story of, of him doing research that was not like I guess it really wasn't initially intended to be research, but um, mm-hmm. he was active in like a, a board game trading community. And they had some algorithm that was like, people would, 
they would say what board games they had. Um, and you had, uh, you know, you say 100 people that all had like 50 board games. And they would also list the board games that they wanted. And I think they had this website that was like PHP or something that after a certain amount of time, someone would take all, every, all of these inputs, turn it into like, you know, whatever this algorithm that they had needed. And then it would run for like a week or two weeks. To, to do matchmaking. To do matchmaking, <laughs> yeah. And he made it like his summer project basically to uh, improve the runtime of that algorithm. And he ended up get I think he got a publication out of it of uh, like, it was something, all I remember is like him, like emphatically saying, if you represent it as a graph or like, it was something like very, very like, uh, uh, he, it was very dramatic. Like it was this buildup <laughs> to like how to, how to make this matchmaking algorithm. And he ended up writing, I think you can actually still find the algorithm on his uh, GitHub profile. Um, but it's like, it, and it, it runs for this site. It improved the runtime from like two weeks to like less than a day. Maybe it's like a couple hours or a couple minutes or something like that. But, um, I just thought that was funny that he got, you know, a research publication out of trying to improve this like hobbyist <laughs> website. <laughs> it's, it's, it's too early and not enough coffee for me <laughs> after being in the sun all day yesterday. Yeah. Oh, so Non-tech, what like what we got planned coming up this week? Anything exciting? Uh, let's see. Um, I'm actually going on. Funny, I'm going on Thinking Elixir tomorrow. Um, so I'm making my rounds. I, I guess um, <laughs> it's the the podcast, the podcast tour. Yeah, yeah, the podcast <laughs> tour. Yeah. Um, and I actually just did um, uh, Elixir Wizards uh, last week or two weeks ago. So it is. It really is the podcast tour. Um, I'm I'm going to speak at MPEX in a couple weeks, so I've I've got to prepare my talk. I'm going to be talking about large language models in Elixir, and honestly, still, uh, I'm still kind of working out some of the ideas. So, I think Elixir is a good language for building applications powered by large language models, especially with like, I I think I tweeted about this, but I I do think it's hilarious that like all these TypeScript like static type stands will use large language models for like parts of their application and it's like how do you type that like what like you're all about you're all about type safety but like what how how are you depending on this this like hallucination machine as as part of your just numbers right (laughs) i I always thought that was funny whereas like elixir i think is 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 pretty good for that because like it's gonna crash so just you know let it crash um there uh yeah so i i think i'm i'm probably going to spend the next week uh, trying to develop that and, and think a lot about like, what is the future of Elixir and large language models? And um, I think, you know, in the NX ecosystem, we're really trying to think a lot through like, how can we, uh, I would say, ride the wave a little bit? Um, and what what is like, how does Elixir fit in this, this wave of people developing applications on large language models? Um, and I, I honestly, I don't even know if the wave will end up being as uh, revolutionary as people are anticipating it to be. Um, I don't know, like there's a lot of applications like demos that I see that I'm like, that's, that was sweet. Uh, but then I'm like, wait, I would never use that though. So I don't (laughs) even know if that was that useful. Um, and I think I saw a survey this, this morning that was like, you know, it was something like 2% of, uh, survey respondents said that chat GPT was very useful for whatever it is that they worked on. And like 98% were just like, a, um, so I think there are like places it fits in as sort of like a tool, but that's what it always will probably be right now. It's just a tool. There's, it's not going to replace, you know, a lot of people's workflows. 
I think it's it's useful for being creative. Yeah, but yeah, that is true. <laughs> I remember when uh, in December when they like first, you know, everyone was getting on board. Like my favorite thing to do was like write. Uh, I think like one of my friends is a is a professor uh, math. He, he got a PhD in group theory, so he's very like abstract. Um, but I would ask like ChatGPT like write me an essay about group theory and like the style of Snoop Dogg. And like, I, I was like, that was the most fun I had probably for the first like week and a half of ChatGPT was just like sending him these long essays about like, uh, I don't know, Kronek or something. And I don't know, there's random group theory things. I, I kept trying to get it to write other people's poems in the style of Edgar Allan Poe. So I'm, I'm like right there with you. But There's I think good, yours is a much better idea. <laughs> yeah, the There's best poet of uh, our time, <laughs> Edgar Allan Poe movie on Netflix. I don't know if you've seen. It. I think it's called The Raven, or not? Not The Raven. Oh, I have um, not. Oh, it's yeah, it's pretty good. It's uh, it's actually another Christopher Nolan movie, I think. See, now I'm writing that down too. <laughs> you're gonna, you're you're just actually you're just laying out my week. What am I gonna do this week? All of this <laughs> stuff. So, I'm a, I'm a movie enthusiast, so I like to uh, I I do like. <laughs> watching movies but i also like i'm not like i can't quote any movies I, I every time i bring up a movie and i meet someone that can like quote every line of a movie i'm like wait i, I, I don't remember that scene at all like <laughs> i can really only quote movies that i've seen many many times so yeah there's uh, like uh there's always people like stepbrothers is one that people can just like rattle off quotes and like i've seen it like probably 10 times and i cannot name uh, like i still probably can't quote anything at that movie i've never seen that movie but so many people have quoted it to me that i feel like i've seen that movie <laughs> it's probably like that that was probably like the comedy of my generation so as <laughs> i was like in i don't know when it came out i was probably in like middle school or high school or something like that but it was like everyone was watching stepbrothers uh my generation was ace ventura so you're probably yeah. better off <laughs> Ace Ventura, yeah. <laughs> oh, man, we watched that movie like a thousand times. <laughs> terrible, terrible movie. <laughs> oh, I tried to watch it not that long ago, and it did not age well for me. <laughs> no, no. I wonder if Step Brothers uh, I, will be the same way. I, I think I, I watched it five or six years after it came out, and I watched it again, and I was like, this movie kind of sucks. <laughs> <laughs> But it was it was at the the height of uh, the height of his popularity when that mo that movie came out. So he could do anything he wanted, basically. <laughs> Although honestly, I, I think uh, the mask stands up like it it, it holds up still. Really, um, but but uh, Ace Ventura, no, like it's it's too off the deep end. <laughs> the ma the mask is a Jim Carrey movie, right? It's mm -hmm. a Jim Carrey, and yeah. and that was um, that was uh, this. It's morning. I can't remember her name. Uh, anyway, that was her debut film too. Um, Cameron Diaz. Okay, I think mm -hmm. that movie must have come out when I was like super little because I remember watching it and being terrified. Um, <laughs> oh well, yeah, so it was. <laughs> it was a little it, dark. Yeah, yeah, I, and I think it was funny but dark. Let me, let me. I gotta figure out the year it came out because I remember watching it and I was like, "That is 
Horror, 1994. Okay, so I was born in 97, so I, I must have watched it when I was like four or five years old for some reason. I don't know how I got my hands on it, but I just remember being terrified at the movie. I like, we, I think we had it on DVD too, or probably, we probably had it on like VCR. Mm hmm. Oh, yeah. Yeah. I, I still have a bunch of VCR tapes and v- VHS tapes, I guess, in, in my basement, but I have no player for it. And I'm, I'm constantly like, I'm going to. One of these days, I'm going to buy a new VCR and watch all of these again. I'll probably be horrified by how terrible they are, but <laughs> I'm I'm waiting for it to like come back in. Like the now everybody buys like record players. Like I was at the yeah. store yesterday, and there were like like brand new record players for sale. Like they were, and they were supposed to be all like vintage looking. So I'm like like when is when is that going to happen for VCRs? People are going to be buying these VCRs, and I'm going to get this. It's not on Blu-ray. I'm going to get it on VCR. You gotta wait till they get tape decks back, and then that'll be like the same time because it's like yeah. the same technology. <laughs> well, I, I think that the problem with well with tape with tape decks and with um, you know uh, video cassettes was that it's mechanically problematic. Like I don't know how many times you had um, <clears throat> like you put a put a tape in that you'd gotten rented from the video store and like it was just all garbly because you couldn't like somebody had put it in a bad machine or they like popped open the, the lid and like played with the tape or something. And, and it would just not, not play. Right. Um, whereas like with, with, um, I would say with, with, you know, DVDs or, or CDs or whatever you, you'd sometimes get skips and things, but the very least, like when it was playing, you didn't have the, you know, you didn't get the, the picture skewed because somebody had messed with the medium. Um, yeah. and, and like they're, they, de- they degrade to the magnetic, um, tape degrades over time. So it's, it's kind of hard to make sure that it's going to be readable years later. Yeah. I actually have vivid memories of like going and renting a movie from Blockbuster. Mm-hmm. And I it was, I think it was like Max Keebler's big move or something like that, which is a, it was a like kid's <laughs> movie and, uh, putting it in the, like player at my grandparents' house, and it didn't play at all. And mm-hmm. I, and like, and it was at, like Blockbuster was closed, so there was no going back to actually get a working copy. And I, I remember how devastating that was. <laughs> like, not going to be able to watch this movie. I was looking forward to it all week. But yeah, I think as like finally that that there is a machine learning analogy there uh, that I think is interesting is like, um, so stable diffusion and like diffusion mm-hmm. generative models like. Mm-hmm. Uh, I think one of the reasons that like they're so powerful and then like, like I, I would say um, like unique uh, as compared to like large language models is um, you, you don't notice tiny mistakes like that, like skips basically, like you don't notice when it makes a mistake because it'll make a mistake on like one pixel and that resolution isn't, you know, enough for you. Whereas like if you, if a large language model makes a word, like a mistake in a few words, uh, it's a, it's a much more drastic mistake and noticeable mistake than than just an image has anyone done diffusion models with elixir yet with nx yeah so you can we have uh we've had stable diffusion implemented for i think pretty much since the beginning um that was one of the bigger efforts before bumblebee came out was to get stable diffusion working so i think we support stable diffusion one and two and then uh we're working on adding like in painting and some of the other more interesting generative uh techniques with with diffusion um i think we don't we don't support like audio diffusion yet i think that's something I'll probably look into soon. Um, yeah, we're, we've had, I would say 
we were pretty early with with diffusion um mm. as compared to a lot of the other like machine learning ecosystems out there audio diffusion is that where you can generate something in somebody else's voice yeah there's that there's also like just like music generation and like um <clears throat> i'm trying to think what one of the big ones is uh i don't there was an interesting one i saw that would take uh it would take you. You would generate spectrograms. I think they are, mm. um, and then like, it, I think someone trained a model on like eighty thousand of these like spectrograms from different sounds or like like ten second clips, audio clips, um, and then they trained a diffusion model to generate those, and then you could play the spectrogram. So you, like you basically taught it to generate images, and in generating images, it generated music, which I thought was pretty wow. cool. So. Um, that was probably a few months ago that came out, and now it feels like ancient history. But uh. <laughs> that's pretty interesting. Yeah, I have a friend, uh, Daniel. I'm going to call him out on here, uh, who sends me a message on my phone, and it's me reading a bedtime story. And I was like, "Man, I why did you do this? Like, this is <laughs> this is dangerous and just making me feel uncomfortable." <laughs> Yeah, I think that like that <clears throat> deep fake thing, it's pretty interesting, but I I think we're pretty good at adapting. Um, like, I, I mean, I, I hope we're pretty good at adapting and, and people will very quickly, I, I think, get used to the fact that a lot of things are augmented in a lot of ways. Um, like, I think a good example is Photoshop. If you saw, uh, you know, the first time you saw a Photoshopped image of someone like holding a car or something, mm -hmm. you're like, whoa, there's no way. But then you realize now everything is Photoshopped. Um, mm -hmm. And I think it'll probably be the same thing. Even now, I think a lot, a lot, like people are getting really good at figuring out when something is generated by ChatGPT. Like, uh, there's a telltale sign. My friend, like, was talking about it the other day. If an email starts with "I hope this email finds you well," like, that's almost <laughs> a guarantee that it was written by ChatGPT. You can ask ChatGPT right now, write me an email, and it will start with "I hope this email finds you well." And now it's like you got to take that out of all your writing unless you want people to think you're ChatGPT. So, so here, here's a question you may not have the answer to. How, how many of those, uh, those, uh, you know, recruiter spam on LinkedIn are generated by chat GPT now? <laughs> probably a ridiculous amount, <laughs> probably all of them, honestly, it's, uh, like, that's one of the more annoying things I think is like people automating these spam emails and, you know, spam mm. messages, <laughs> but it like, I, I think, uh, we're pretty good at detecting or like picking up on those more nuanced like signals. So it's pretty easy now, I think, to tell when someone is writing with ChatGPT, whereas if they're just, you know, sending you a genuine message. Like almost all new Stack Overflow answers are, I've, I've noticed a few of those that I've, I'm reading it and I'm like, yeah, and then I, I'll take it and run it through zero GPT. And it comes back and it's like, yes, this is generated by AI. I was like, I knew it. <laughs> yeah. So zero GPT is actually pretty uh, bad too, though. Like it'll say, I think they like it will say like the Declaration of Independence is AI generated, which maybe it is. <laughs> I don't know. Maybe, you know. maybe they had something. Um, but the, like it'll 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 definitely misattribute some things to AI. Uh, I, I think like it's difficult now uh, to to discern like what is AI generated for a model versus like a human. I think humans are probably better at picking up on uh, the small like signs um, and especially for if you're like a teacher it's probably a little bit easier for you to like get a baseline of how people write and then you know seeing like hey there's a massive uh, 
change here in your tone and style. And mm-hmm. um, I think one of my friends is going to, to teach uh, computer science now. Um, and we were talking a lot about how, like, how is he going to tell the difference? Um, I think like, I was like, well, you should just do like a baseline test beginning of the year. No, you know, no internet, like in class, 45 minute, just like ask them to write code for something. And then like try to get a baseline for, uh, you know, people's style and how they approach problems and, um, use that as a discernment. But then he's like, yeah, but like, you know, if they, uh, if they, they, they improve a ton, like, how do I know it's not just because I am such a good teacher and they <laughs> took all of my wisdom. <laughs> yeah. It's hard to, you don't want to, you don't want to give up that credit there if they're <laughs> <laughs> exactly. Yeah. Oh man. Um, well we've been, we've been at this an hour. I've got stuff I got to get done today. I could, talk all day there's a whole lot more questions i have but hmm. thanks for joining us sean appreciate yeah, it Yeah, thanks for having me it was a lot of fun really nice to meet you john yep nice to meet you as well all right i'll talk to you all later